0: I'm Bonnie Glazer, director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power podcast, we're discussing China's relationship with the United Kingdom. In 2015, then Prime Minister David Cameron declared that the British-Chinese relationship had entered a golden era. Despite normative disagreements on issues like governance and human rights, successive British leaders emphasized maintaining positive relations with China and carefully separated sensitive political touch points from the economic relationship. And that approach enabled the UK to cement its position as a top destination for Chinese investment and one of China's closest economic partners in Europe. However, a series of recent events have led to greater friction in the UK-China relationship. In this year alone, China enacted national security legislation for Hong Kong, and its handling of the COVID-19 pandemic has led to rising calls in the UK for a reset of the bilateral relationship. So as the UK attempts to redefine its ties with the world following its official exit from the EU, how it renegotiates its relationship with China will have enormous consequences, not just for London and Beijing, but also for the United States and the rest of the world. To discuss the trajectory of China-UK relations and their geopolitical importance, I'm joined by Mr. Charles Parton. Charlie is currently a senior associate fellow at the Royal United Services Institute, and runs an advisory company called China Inc. In his diplomatic career, he spent 22 years working in or on China, Hong Kong, and Taiwan. And importantly, uh, he is author of a just-released report titled Towards a UK Strategy and Policies for Relations with China. Thanks for joining us today, Charlie. Pleasure. I'd like to start with a discussion of how we got to where we are today. Certainly, COVID-19 has affected the China-UK relationship. But if we look backwards a little bit, can you discuss the key turning points in the UK's relationship with China?
1: I think in the last few years, the problem of the UK is it hasn't really been looking very hard at the relationship with China. I mean, I know that we've been very absorbed with Brexit and, and many other things, but even before then, we really don't have the sort of think tanks that you have in America, um, the knowledge and, and these sort of academic backgrounds. So I would say that go back five years and China really was rather unimportant to us. That's an extraordinary statement, but it was only 4% of our trade. Then we had the golden era of um, George Osborne and David Cameron and I put George Osborne first because as Treasury Minister he was running China policy and I actually call it quite often you know you spell that era with three R's, era or era you can take your pick but I go for the former uh, because it just put all the emphasis on trade and economic and was unrealistic in its assessment of, of what China was a- aiming for and gradually I think over the last few years there's been an awakening. and you referred to it in 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 your introduction i think Xinjiang started it off but not really to the degree that it should have done Hong Kong far more of course because we have our ties with Hong Kong and i think the whole Huawei debate and whether that should be in our 5G really started to to get China back in the press but as you rightly say it, it was the Covid crisis and what was the i think the British public in particular found particularly offensive what was the Chinese propaganda offensive. Um, and that stirred up the media, and it's certainly stirred up MPs, who some of whom were already stirred up. And it's really quite bipartisan. So there's real you know, agreement that we have got to look much more closely at our own national interests, securities and values. And that's a sort of holy trinity I come back to quite a lot. I think you can say that the COVID propaganda offensive really did turn the UK public, and therefore the press, which are very powerful over here, and our members of parliament, uh, much against the stance that we had on China before.
0: So it was a little over a decade ago in uh, 2009 that the UK issued a framework for engagement that laid out uh, three pillars of a China strategy. Those pillars were getting the best for the UK from China's growth, fostering China's emergence as a responsible global player and promoting uh, sustainable development, modernization, and internal reform in China. So if you look back at that strategy, how would you critique it? Was it the right strategy for the time? Did it achieve any of the goals that it set out to achieve?
1: I mean, to be fair to it, because it does read quite quaintly now, uh, 10 years on, it was entitled a framework. And I guess it would be unfair to to label it with this title strategy, because in that case, it's really dated rather badly. But as a statement of ideals of what the UK would like in its relations with China, how it would help China emerge as a responsible global player and the sort of cooperation that we had to have for global goods and sustainable development, it's fine. It remains a set of ideals. The fact is that the nature of the way that the Communist Party has taken China means that those ideals are hardly going to be met and and indeed we had very little agency in in helping them change China or, or being met but I think rather like there has been considerable disappointment in over on your side of the pond that the, the idea of China emerging to become, say, more like us or a responsible player with whom we can do a lot of business, we've come to see, as perhaps we should have done much earlier, that this isn't the nature of the beast. So in that sense, it's outdated. I say in my paper, yes, great ideals, keep those, but actually as the degree to which you can reach them and how you reach them, we've got to think again.
0: So we will talk about your terrific paper a little bit later on but let's um let's just discuss Brexit a bit how does Brexit factor into the UK's policy and approach toward China and do you expect that going forward that there will be significant differences between the UK and the EU on China related issues
1: I don't think there will be I mean the problem with Brexit first of all is Brexit. Secondly, it's the amount of bandwidth that it's taken up in our political and thinking chattering classes. But I don't think that what's coming out of the EU at the moment, and I, I worked for the EU for, for five years, is anything that he, anyone over here would necessarily quarrel with. I think we'd go along with it. The problem is that, I think, particularly in certain elements of our Conservative Party, the party in power, The idea of cooperating with the EU in any way is somewhat problematic for them at the moment. But I think that if we're dealing with the nature of China as it is, then like-minded countries, and that's the US, the EU, Australia, India, Japan, the democracies, cannot afford to uh, act independently. We really do have to work together. And since our viewpoints and our interests are pretty much aligned anyway that makes a great deal of sense so I hope that the UK can whatever happens on the Brexit front and however tense some of the negotiations get in that divorce nevertheless we can leave the foreign policy of the China side intact I mean another problem there of course is that if you look at the EU it's never been very united within itself on how it deals with China but you know, Again, within the European Union, there are countries who I think are reacting in a very sensible way towards China. And if the EU itself cannot bring all 27 members on board, then at least we can work closely with the major players that, that are aligning themselves with us.
0: To what extent do you think that commercial interests will remain a key driver of the UK-China relationship? Clearly, the UK is going to be negotiating free trade agreements with countries now, and probably will be having negotiations with China for an FTA. I wonder if you think, does that provide China with some leverage? Does the UK have significant interests in reaching a free trade agreement with China?
1: Well, let's just get the free trade agreement out of the way, so to speak, because I think when we went through Brexit, everybody has said, well, now we can trade much more with China. And and there was nothing really to stopping people trading with China anyway. And I don't think necessarily a free trade agreement is, is the be all and end all. Of course it helps. But free trade agreements are phenomenally difficult and lengthy and complex to negotiate. And the chances of us having one with China in the next decade, I would rate as slim, not least because we have to have one with the United States first. Uh, We've got to work out our trading relationship with Europe. And those are far bigger trading partners for us than with China. And if you look at the Australian free trade agreement, that took 10 years to get through, to agree. And only then I think it was pushed over the line for political rather than actual reasons of Australia's interest so let's not get too hung up about a free trade agreement but your original question is you know how much do economic relations matter well of course they matter a tremendous amount and what with COVID and the battering that the economy has taken they're going to matter more but at the same time I think there's a very big feeling swelling in the country that we've got to be very open-eyed about that and one of the things that I've been saying for donkey's years, and I put it quite strongly again in my paper, if you don't mind me referring to it, is the need to get a clear view on where we actually stand on matters like how much does Chinese investment matter to the UK? How much can the China really threaten your exports if you're in the diplomatic doghouse? And a number of other things which I come back to later uh, if we talk about how the UK should proceed. My point is in that is that I really don't think in fact that we're as badly off as we think. There's a considerable cost to China. They don't invest in the UK for charitable reasons. And if you look at countries that have suffered in the doghouse politically, nevertheless, in the past, it happened with the UK in 2012, it happened in Norway for six years. When you're in the doghouse, your exports still increase. Certain companies get hit, it's true particularly if they're symbolic or politically important. But generally, you're not too bad. So I think there's got to be a balance there. It's going to be difficult to work out, for sure. But I don't think that we should be as we were back in 2015 and just say, well, it's got to be the economy and everything else goes, goes hang. It's not, I think, where it's going to be.
0: You mentioned briefly, uh, as one of the turning points in the UK-China relationship, the issue of Huawei and the 5G decisions that are being made in the UK. And it seems that after resisting pressure from the United States for months, that Prime Minister Boris Johnson is perhaps ready to phase out the use of Huawei equipment and equipment made by other Chinese companies from the UK's 5G network. So I wonder if that's how you see it. And uh, then maybe if you could explain what has really changed the UK's approach. You think if the use of Chinese equipment will be entirely banned, that this policy of using it on the periphery, but not in the core of 5G networks will essentially be cast aside, and then what implications do you think that would have then for the larger UK-China relationship going forward?
1: That's a big question. I'll try and be brief. So there's been a lot of commentary recently to say, well, of course, because the US is going to stop Huawei getting various bits of technology and equipment, that will mean that the performance of Huawei will be very badly affected. And, And the UK hadn't thought about that. Well, come on. I mean, that's been going on, uh, you know, what was ZTE and Huawei, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I don't think it's suddenly dawned on Boris Johnson and his government that, oh my goodness, we might find that the Americans don't don't sell crucial equipment to Huawei and therefore we'll have to reconsider. I think what's going on, when I said right at the start, that the feeling against China, the worries that have been shown by COVID in the way that it will, if it has power over you in any form, and being inside your telecommunications is a powerful form of influence, that it will use it in potentially in a malign way. And that's made a lot of our members of parliament very worried. And so in a telecommunications bill that will have to go through the Houses of Parliament, it's very clear that the majority of the Conservatives have for getting things through will probably not hold. And the one thing that Mr. Johnson's government wants to avoid, I think is being defeated in the House of Commons. So I think that's political piece that, that's gone on. Uh, I think the opposition to Huawei has also risen. And for me, the biggest reason that is that, uh, and again, it's in some ways been brought home to people by by the COVID thing Is is what I call the black vulture of policy. I mean, if you're making policy on anything and you have this black vulture sitting on your shoulder where you know that China has considerable power inside your telecommunications and how vital that's going to be over 20 30 years even outside the field of telecommunications you're going to be thinking well can we really afford to to offend them if they're sitting there with that sort of influence so I think that when it comes to the whole question of critical national infrastructure not just telecoms but wider there's been a rethink in the UK so I'm anticipating that that the, the very many decisions which the UK government seems to make on a regular basis about Huawei and then overturns will be will be overturned again. Um, and they will eventually decide that Huawei cannot be even in the periphery. And indeed, many technologists say there's no difference between the main part of the system and the periphery anyway. So the problem will be that you can't do it overnight. I mean, Huawei is already in our systems. It's been in our 4G th- Um, for for, for many years. And so digging it out is going to be expensive and time consuming. So whatever the, you know, the vote on Huawei or the final, final decision is, there will have to be a time given uh, and a deadline, probably several years hence before it can be completely removed from our systems and then you say well what you ask what the Chinese reaction will be it will be merry hell I expect because amongst other things the UK is the sort of plastic egg in the hen coop designed to encourage other European chickens to lay around it because the UK has good cyber technology it's got good defense and it probably could manage the risk but a lot of other countries in Europe couldn't And they've been looking to the UK. And if the UK goes, OK, we'll take Huawei, then with a sigh of relief, they can say, well, if the UK does, then it's all right for us. Uh, It may not be, but they can say that. And and politically, it's very expedient and they don't get attacked by China. Now, if the UK says, actually, we don't think it's a good idea, that example is removed from Europe and the Chinese are going to be very cross about that.
0: The Hong Kong issue has really become very prominent in the UK. I have to admit, I am surprised at the forceful reaction that's uh, coming from the government. You obviously, when look back at the Umbrella Movement twenty fourteen you know UK was pretty silent. Even the reaction to the protests uh, in, in twenty nineteen was not that strong. And yet, this national security legislation really seems to have hit a raw nerve. So can you can you talk a little bit about why the UK is reacting strongly to this?
1: Yes, again, I, I put it in the context of COVID and all the other things that have begun, I think, to get scales for, or about the Communist Party falling from people's eyes. But I think it strikes a particular chord because of the history in the joint declaration. And because the joint declaration is a an international treaty registered with the the United Nations. And I think there's a strong feeling in government, if not in in the people who don't don't necessarily know the detail of this sort of thing, but certainly within government, that if China is prepared to flout that sort of international law in Hong Kong, or indeed in the South China Sea, this is very deleterious to, to international law generally. And our whole system of international relations is based on an observance of international law. So that's one thing that that upsets people. Um, And I think, you know, this feeling of a moral responsibility towards Hong Kong uh, is particularly strongly held by the current government for whatever reasons. And, you know, if you look at the offer of passports to British national overseas, it doesn't actually help in any way to prevent the national security law being Past, and it may not help very greatly in ensuring that implementation, however the CCP, the Communist Party, implements it in Hong Kong, may not moderate that in any other way either. What it does do is express a moral responsibility to those people who we were responsible for up until 1997. I mean, the thing to note about it, of course, is that if you're young in Hong Kong, you won't have British national overseas status. And so it doesn't actually help you. But nevertheless, for those that got that status before the 1st of July 1997, it is, as it were, a completion of the sort of responsibility that that the UK felt.
0: I want to talk uh, about your new report, The Strategy Paper. And ask you to explain why, uh, you say Britain hasn't really had a strategy, but China has, and that going forward, the UK needs one. So talk a little bit about what that strategy should be, what its, uh, its goals should be, some of the key components, and maybe a little bit about how it differs from the US strategy, which, of course, the Trump administration just about a month ago issued its strategy paper uh, on China. And I'm sure you have read that. So is this similar? Do you think the UK should take some of the pages out of the US strategy or should be very different?
1: You'll think I'm being a bit of a coward and ducking the question, and I'm not. And you can come back and hold me to it. But I think what I really want to start with, is that we don't have the sort of structures and have done the basic research in order to have a finalised strategy. So, in, in a sense, that's why I titled the paper "Towards a Strategy and Policy" because uh, I don't profess that that you know, out of the head of Charlie Parton, like in Zeus, Athena comes fully armed. And, and I think you know, the main point, the first starting point, I would say, is what we've got to do is get our structures right. We don't have them. I mean. In an earlier piece, but also I refer to it in that paper, I talk about the need for the UK having a leading small group. I mean, you'll be familiar with the Communist Party's leading small groups in dealing with various Policy things. And I think we need one for China because China cuts across every single aspect of government and relations. And the only other country that does that is the US. But we don't need a strategy so much for the US because we can simply get on the phone and talk to you. That's not easy with the Chinese. So we need the sort of structure, a central body led by the Prime Minister that meets regularly and ensures that we don't have the sort of farce that we had over the Huawei decision, where different ministries quite clearly are very unhappy with the decision and leak and et cetera, et cetera, they're not all one. That's the first thing. And then other parts of that structure would be, we need an office of interference like the Australians have got. That is a very big issue, Chinese Communist Party interference in our countries. And it does require central government to think about it very carefully and have the right structure and indeed have the right structures within our security services, which are much more aligned to do with a traditional sort of security threat. And then another structure might be a technical advisory group. And we haven't really talked about the threats to our technology in the UK, whether it's in our companies or in our our, our universities. But I think the government's got a role there to lay down what can and can't be sort of cooperated with on China, because we're in a very different situation from the Cold War, where you know, Russia, held it wasn't really important in the economy, and the R&D it has, we certainly weren't going to share it. So that's just some basic structuring that we need to do. And the other thing I think, well, there are many other things I think, is... The government's got to get right as a preliminary thing is getting the expertise that when i said at the start we don't really have the expertise that you have in the states but what little we have in our think tanks and academia i don't think is systematically tapped by a government which actually in its own ranks lacks a lot of china experience there so very few china speakers very few people who have been to china certainly at, at the top ranks so it's got to get its act together in preparing a strategy by drawing on what resources we do have. And then I, I referred earlier to you know five bits of basic research. I mean, the first is: Does the UK benefit from Chinese investment? And there's a fabulous paper by Michael Pettis, based in, in China, but he's he's an American, for God's sakes. And he wrote a paper entitled, Does the UK benefit from Chinese Investment? and concluded that it doesn't. Well, my advice to the government would be: do the research independently, uninfluenced by anybody else, and see whether you agree with Michael. Because if he's right, then you don't need to be so worried about Chinese threats. The same applies to our exports. I mentioned that already. But also things like the City of London. You know, how much potentially can the City of London benefit from finance in China? How much does China benefit? Who benefits the most? Because if they benefit more than us, then they're not going to turn their backs on it. And again, same with students. Can the Chinese Communist Party afford, can it even do it actually, stop students come to the UK and ditto with tourists? There are reasons I put in the paper why I think that's very unlikely. So in sum, do your research, British government, and decide just how vulnerable you are to the threats. And having said all that, and do tell me to shut up if I'm banging on too long, then you can get to sort of thinking about the strategy. And in general terms, very obviously, we've got to put a lot more emphasis on our own, on what I call the holy trinity, that national security, our interests and values, which are really going up the scale. So yes, maximize the common goods that we have with China, whether that's trade or investment under the right terms, climate change, pollution, health development, you name it. There are many things where we can work together with China, but there are many things where we're gonna have to agree to disagree in a mature fashion. And I'm under no illusions that the Communist Party will be mature when it comes to that. And that means that we've got to work much more closely with the United States, with Five Eyes, with like-minded countries, the EU, India, Japan, and others. So that doesn't sort of give you every single recommendation on what the strategy should be, but I think it gives an indication of the direction of where it should go. And and I think we're going to have to be a little bit more canny in the UK as well, depending on what happens in the US. I mean, you know, the D word is bestriding the land. Is it decoupling? I'd rather say it's divergence. And if the US goes too far one way, then it it risks not bringing everybody with it. It's got to be, you know, a, a very persuasive joint case made.
0: It's a terrific description and hopefully our listeners will go ahead and dig into the report and understand your suggestions uh, more uh, completely. Most of what you talked about was really protecting UK's interests and uh, enhancing resiliency. Many of the strategy papers in the United States have also said that we need to strengthen ourselves. We, We need to do what is in our own country's interests. But of course, at the end there, you highlighted what I think is a very important point as well, that it's not just for the UK and to benefit the UK, but that there is a need for greater coordination with key allies. You referred to Five Eyes cooperation, but of course, it really is broader than that. It's cooperation among like-minded countries to protect their shared values and democracy. So I wonder if you could elaborate on that point a bit. To what extent should the UK get out in front? Maybe not to the extent that the US has, but the US is not alone. Australia, very much, is taking forward-leaning positions. To some extent, we see this from Canada. Is this something that the UK should be much more forceful and prominent about going forward as part of this strategy?
1: Well, you'll forgive me for saying this, but but I think that actually if we're to sort of achieve the goal for like-minded countries, it might be a good idea for the United States to step back a little bit. I don't mean that it shouldn't be wholehearted in its support and and work, but as a sort of figurehead, then I think it becomes very confrontational. And you seem to therefore, you know, be risking going towards towards a sort of cold war scenario where you have two blocks led by two different powers and I think we really should try to avoid that. So if the UK or Japan in another or Australia in another or Canada in another can be seen to be taking the lead, that might be, well it might be more persuasive than an America which might be seen to be a little bit too ideological perhaps is, I'm not sure if that's the right word. Um, So yes I do think that there is um, a, a role for countries such as mine and you know whether it's A sort of more you know a larger role version of TPP or whatever I think we should be dividing up the sectors as it were between different like-minded countries of course the United States will play a massive role in that just because of its sheer importance and size and everything else but my advice would be to play that as much of a role behind the curtain as in front you can influence it just as much and probably achieve more by not be seen as a ringleader. I don't know whether that would go down well in Washington. You know, we don't want to rub the Communist Party's face um, the wrong way. We want to maximise cooperation. We really do, but not at the expense of our interests, security and values. Uh, and that's going to be extraordinarily difficult. So we need a united front, to use that term, but one which is not seen as, as deliberately hostile.
0: Well, here's to a new united front to influence uh, Chinese policies and behavior going forward. We've been talking with Mr. Charles Parton, who is a senior associate fellow at the Royal United Services Institute and runs an advisory company called China Inc. Thanks so much for being with us today, Charlie.
1: Pleasure, Bonnie. Thank you very much for inviting me.